Hello, and welcome to the Sasha Sessions, a Team USA podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Cohen, Olympic silver medalist in figure skating. Joining me this week is Tim Urban, thought leader on procrastination and the blogger behind Wait But Why. Welcome, Tim. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So I want to start a little bit more broad for people that may not be as familiar with you or your work. Aside from your incredible TED Talk on procrastination, which I think I equally enjoyed for informational and entertainment value, you're really well known for your blog, Wait But Why? And it's a blog where people can find book-length posts ranging on topics from technology, relationships, history, like group identity. And I was wondering how you got to know so much about so many different topics and where did where did this blog come from? I think it's a couple of things. I'm a very, very curious person. I just like like going on. Like a lot of my procrastination spirals are actually me learning something and going on some like rabbit hole. And I'm interested in a lot of different things. But I find that I'm kind of a, um, my ideal way to learn is like, is to get the basics of something and then like move on to something else. So it's a perfect match for a blogger because I get to learn about something, dig really deep in it for a few weeks or maybe a couple months. And it's my whole world for a while. And then when I get sick of it and it starts to get, you know, to the really technical part, I can just leave and go do something else. So I started doing that. Um, uh, well, you know, the, the blog started not really. Uh, with the intent of you know, explaining things, really. It was just kind of a blog, and I was writing about stuff I thought about and stuff that I was interested in. And and uh, one of the things that it has turned into is somewhere where I, I will dig in deep to something and explain. And the cool thing about the internet today is you can, a curious person can, on their couch, learn something uh, well enough to write, like a, a blog post, well enough to, um, you know, do a Q&A with, people who are laymen on the topic and answer really any question they have. That's kind of the level I want to be at. Uh, they can do that on their couch with their with their laptop now. Um, uh, it's like I think of expertise kind of if it goes from 1 to 10 um, and like 10 is the world-leading expert and 1s and 2s are laymen. I, I want to get myself from like a 2 or a 3 up to a, a 6 maybe. And so I do a lot of reading um, uh, articles, and there's a lot of journal articles if you really want to dig deeper, and there's a lot of great YouTube videos out there, and there's a lot of books you can just, you know, quickly buy on on Kindle or whatever and just just be, be you know, a, f- a few days or maybe a few weeks later, you, you actually understand the topic back and forth, and then you can write about it. And I think one of the things that makes you and your writing so unique is the way you go about it. Part of it, the stick figures— part of it, the humor, and part of it, I think, just the range of topics. And I think one that most (laughs) impressed me or stood out was this giant rectangle with hundreds and hundreds of squares, and this is your life. And every square is a week of your life, and then you broke it down into how many dumplings you had left to eat and how many Super Bowls. And I think we don't usually look at our life in such a big picture and where did that idea come from? Because I think most people, when they see that, they really appreciate it and resonate it with it, and it gives them a new perspective. But not that many people are thinking of putting their life in like little boxes and a rectangle. Yeah. So actually, the origin of that was I had a Word document on my desktop for a long time where I would, and I think this this was this was one of the things that grew out of the procrastination meadow, uh, where it's, uh, you know, I'm just the kind of thing I would be doing when I'm supposed to be doing something else. I, I had um, this Word doc, I still have it, and I would write a capital M uh, every month that went by. And um, 
and I, I first filled in all the M's to get up to the current point, and then I would just keep doing that. Now I could then I started color coding. Well, okay, so and I did, and I ended up doing it by um, thirty six M's to a row. So it was three years. Um, and so I had this nice little grid of M's, and I started bolding ones that had an important thing happen in them, and I would color code whole sections like high school or, um, you know, when I moved to this city, and then, and then I was, and uh, it became this kind of interesting visual of my life. And, and this was working way, your way backwards of things that had already happened. Yeah, I, I got there, and then when a new month would happen, I'd go on and I'd put the new M in and kind of looked at, look at it and reflect, or I'd think about, you know, how many in the future is this big deadline, or, uh, you know, what's this goal I have, and... Um, to me, it was a nice like way to visualize the big picture. I always think that sometimes there's a lot of clarity to be had if you just zoom out. And zooming out can be, you know, if you're trying to understand how the co- what the coastline looks like. You would like to go up into a helicopter and even better in an airplane. And even better if you get to like the International Space Station and you can see the whole continent. And, and so th- that's kind of the, the physical kind of zoom out. But you can do the same thing with time. And you can do the same thing um, um, with like a topic. You can zoom out and uh, on the broader topic, uh, you know, that, that surrounds the topic. And so I always am looking for ways to zoom out. And sometimes I think that we forget to do that. We forget that there's a lot more clarity that we could be having about stuff. Um, just using a calendar on your wall is a mini zoom out to look at the month. So I just did the same thing on a bigger scale, and then it turned it into a blog post. And I think it's funny because that blog post gives a lot of people is a lot of reactions to it. You know, there's some people get really anxious. Uh, depressed, and then other people get really inspired or motivated by it. Um, and uh, I just think that's the power of kind of having some clarity on the reality of your life. For me, it just, it, it reminded me in a way of Olympic planning, but it was four-year cycles. And it was, okay, where do you need to be March of this year? And, you know, the Olympics are three years out, and then you'd start counting down days. But right. it was all very narrow and encompassing to like this one right. You, li- you lived event. in, like, a four-year, just, like, your year was a four-year cycle. That was your whole life. Yeah, that was, been, right? that's like, kind of the, how you saw it. I remember watching the 1998 Olympics and thinking, I need to be at the 2002 Olympics. Mm-hmm. What do I need to do to get there? And... And then you kind of have an idea when your last Olympics might be based on just the peak age for your sport. And then you really can't imagine a day after that. I could never imagine March of 2006 because the Olympics were the very, very end of February 2006. It's just like, what's going to happen? I don't know. It's just like when we know we're going to die one day, but like we can't really imagine it. It's all theoretical. So an idea of like life without sport when it had been two-decade pursuit was just not something I could. It must have felt grasp. kind of like amorphous that the future time was just kind of just now. It's like you just have all this open time. It's like yeah, it's like what would you do? Right. Where's the structure? Everything is leading up to this one moment, and I actually was thinking, what would Tim think about like if if Tim was going to write a forty thousand word <laughs> blog on athletes and Olympians and how they think and their life? I'm like, what would that turn into? Like, would we go back to the beginning of time? <laughs> like, what, what would happen? Yeah, so so that's the thing. Is so many posts. I don't I don't intend to start like the Big Bang, but I often end up back at <laughs> yeah. the Big Bang or the origin of life or the origin of of, of humans. You know, humans, um, and it only happens because as I'm thinking hard about this topic, I'm thinking, well, but why? So why is it like this? And then I'm thinking, well, but how did it start? You know, why did how did it get like this? Because I want to. This is just my curiosity. My like desire to really understand something. I find it really unsatisfying to not fully under, you know, be oriented. And so that often will then take me back to, well, if you really want to see when this started, you got to go back 
all the way to the when humans started evolving. That's how we got. That's why this is the way it is. And so then I'm back there in my writing, which is I you know I have the luxury of doing because it's my own site. You know, if you have a shorter, if you if you're writing in a magazine or something, you can't. So I, I feel like one of the things I like to take advantage of with a blog is being able to do that. But um, I think for yeah for athletes, I think um, I would probably start asking the question, why are there athletes? Like, why do sports matter to us? Um, why does competition matter to us or, or, you know, achievement? Where does our, where does athlete motiv- motivation come from? Where does fandom come from? And, and get into the psychology because there's so much, it's such an interesting psychological puzzle. Like and it's that. so global, so universal. It's, it's, it is something in our DNA. It yeah. is not some a cultural thing. Um, everyone, every There'd be country. some amazing stick figures back to like ancient Greek times. Definitely. I, I could draw a good, <laughs> a good figure skating uh, stick figure. Yeah, we yeah, need I'm this. work on that. We need this. I, I know you have a long to-do list of <laughs> topics. So I want to take the audience back to the beginning of, of Tim and not maybe the very, very beginning, but you were a government or politics major. I know you were interested in music, but then somehow you ended up starting a tutoring company and writing a blog, and and you felt like you were doing too many things at once. And then there was this, this shift with Wait But Why, and I feel like that's a very interesting moment of this kind of personal exploration and all these different topics that you're interested in, and then choosing a moment to to focus and go deep. Yeah, there's a little bit of tyranny of choice and kind of perfectionism where you, you, it's really unsatisfying to feel like you could be good at something, but you're not trying it. Or by going all in on one thing, you're inherently not pursuing these other things. And then you have the what if, what if those other things are, you know, it's this certain personalities are going to- So much FOMO. <laughs> so much FOMO. And some personalities just, they don't have that problem. Um, and other ones, uh, this is like a classic thing that they're going to be dealing with. Um, and so I'm, I'm definitely of that kind. And I, um, I knew a long time ago I really wanted to do something creative uh, in, like, the arts. So I was really interested in music. Um, I wanted to score films because I wanted to write music but didn't really want to write lyrics at the time. I wanted to write musicals, though, at another point. Um, and then I was blogging, um, which I, st- I didn't realize I liked, but then I realized I loved that. Um, but meanwhile, I was also working in the business world because uh, that's something I started doing kind of initially as a procrastination activity from the icky music career I was trying to start. Uh, but then I, you know, partnered with an old friend and we had a lot of fun doing it, uh, Andrew and I. And uh, finally, I, I was just going, I was kind of going crazy uh, with frustration, feeling like I was doing three or four things all not so well. And so um, went with with a lot of encouragement from Andrew uh, just took the leap and went uh, went all in on writing. I just had to pick something. I went all in on writing to see what would happen. And um, you know what I've learned is that going all in on something has, for me, has there's there's such upside to that that it uh, it out it for me it outweighs the FOMO. So the joy I've gotten from actually trying to like you know really do my best at writing has maybe not care nearly as much about the fact that I'm not pursuing the other five or six things that I'm interested in. So it was a good lesson for me. It took me about a decade after college to learn it, but um, but so far it's been good. And how do your your choices for topics come up on the blog? Is it something you kind of just get in your head because you read an article on AI, or do you have this very organized list of of topics within sectors that you're going to be covering for your blog? Or is it just kind of this organic, spontaneous group identity politics to, you know, machine learning? Kind of how how does that unfold? Yeah, I think I do the same thing that um, stand-up comics do. So stand-up comics, 
what they do is um, they're not always thinking funny thoughts. It's that funny things happen in life. Funny thoughts pop into their head, just like they do for all of us. But they write it down, and that's the difference. And they write it down, and they the little moments of oh wait, you know that that's a that's almost like you know this is almost. I saw something. I saw something today actually. Oh XKCD. Um, this is uh, one of my favorite web comics, and I was looking at uh, one of his recent comics, and he had some. He was talking about uh, this. Um, it was this. These two characters interacting, and one was saying they don't like this new earthquake detection thing because they liked kind of uh, discovering that there's an earthquake happening themselves. They liked that. They liked that. They, they could read the signs early, and the, and the girl in the comic says, "So you're." You're worried about earthquake spoilers now. And I was just like, okay, that's clearly some moment he had. He's thinking about this idea and popped into his head that it's kind of like a spoiler. And he wrote it down and turned it into this great comic. So I think um, I just do that with with my topics, whether it's something funny that pops into my head or something interesting or I'm in a great conversation. And in so many conversations, something either is just interesting kind of conversation about human nature is happening or I'm introduced to some new cool technological possibility or I'm just learning about something that I didn't know and it's blowing my mind and I'll just write it down and then that turns into this big list. One of my favorite topics that you you cover is this idea of reasoning from first principles versus reasoning from analogy and I think it's very very interesting because again it's I think something you do so well is zooming out to this macro level to really question right the same way you were talking to what you would do if you wrote a blog on sports and the Olympics it's like why do we participate? What are fans about? And I think the idea of questioning what we take for granted and what to be true and what to be possible, and then you combine that with another topic that I feel like pops up in all your posts, which is the the human nature. We have the 50,000-year-old gene inside of us that wants to survive and tells us to do certain things and maybe this lower survival self and the nuance of how these these things come together and kind of create societies and our our own dreams, right, and and what we choose to do with our lives. And so I guess I was wondering why you touched on first principles to write about, like how that came to you, and what the biggest takeaway for you was in your own life. Yeah, to me, that you know, I always know that a, a concept is important, at least for me, when I write about it or just hear about it, and then I can't stop thinking about it. Ever since I wrote about this idea, um, I've been— uh, it's just come up a lot. I, I think about it all the time, and um, and it and it has affected how I think. And so the, the basic idea is just that there's, you know, there's kind of two distinct ways of reasoning um, when you're trying to make a decision, thinking about what's possible, whatever it is, thinking about what's true or not. One is to reason by analogy, which is um, to basically say this is what is being done in the world, so this must be what's possible. This is not being done, so it must be not possible. This is what's always happened, so it must be the right way. This is what everyone thinks is true, so it must be true, right? And um, we are, which is actually a great shortcut. Uh, it's it's actually uh, really useful to 95% of the time, 99% of the time. Reasoning by analogy is the way to go. It doesn't make sense to, to reinvent the wheel about everything, to question everything and try to puzzle together the truth all the time when there's, when so many other people have already done the work uh, and you can kind of take that shortcut. Um, reasoning from first principles is a, um, uh, a totally different way of reasoning. And this is what physicists do. It's actually a physics term. They they don't look at the conventional wisdom. They don't look at what um, 
uh, other theories say, they look at the actual axioms, the facts at hand, the things they know to be true, and they use those as puzzle pieces to construct a conclusion. So uh, like an easy example would be, um, you know, why did the iPhone do so well? Why, why was and it just exploded Apple to be an even bigger company than they were? The reason is that they didn't say in 2006, well, we want to get into the phone business, so you know, what should our keyboard look like? Uh, let's make it a really Apple-y keyboard. It'll be so cool. Or let's have it, you know, it'll, we'll, our flip phone will be even, the flip will be extra. You know, it'll just really go so uh, smoothly. It'll be this beautiful little device. No, they said, what should a mobile device be? And they looked at the actual facts, which is what are the, technologi- the technologies that we have access to, um, what is what do people seem to want these days uh, in their life? What could be useful? Then they they use that and they puzzled the way up. And by the time they got to the top, there was no keyboard. Um, they had done originality, uh, and they had done it not by being geniuses, but by not being afraid to just independently reason uh, and ignore the conventional wisdom or the rest of the world if um, their eventual puzzle didn't match up with what the rest of the world was doing. Usually, you know, even if we reason from first principles, we have a hard time actually, you know, going all in on our reasoning and putting our money behind it because um, there's that part of our brain that evolved a long time ago that uh, wants to take that shortcut, reason by analogy, and is scared to stand out and do, do things that actually don't fit in. So, I just see that everywhere. I see it in creativity and the arts. I see it in entrepreneurship all the time. And I see it in investing. I see it in the way we run our lifestyles about, you know, there's definitely a way we're supposed to be with when you, you know, you, what kind of house you live in and when you get married and when you have kids and how you parent them. And um, there is very much a, a formula that we were supposed to follow. And I think um, some of the best decisions can be made when we are not afraid to kind of evaluate that on our own and do our own thing. And how much—and I don't know if this falls into the evolution or our nature, kind of that survival instinct we have, but trust. Because I think some people have a lot of self-trust or confidence, right, to believe in their own convictions or first principles where other people may maybe come to their own first principles but don't have the the capacity or the, the strength of belief to, to follow them. Well, we evolved at a time when— Conventional wisdom was wise because things didn't change very much. So your great-great-great-great-grandmother probably lived pretty much the same life you're living, maybe on the same piece of land. There was wisdom that would go around about which animals are dangerous, which fruit you should and shouldn't eat, um, and, uh, and you know all, all of that kind of stuff when you hear about it. You listen to it because it's right because it's been it's it, it is the wisdom of of many trial and errors and uh, and so our brains evolved in that world where the people who ignored conventional wisdom and said well I'm going to try it my own way they actually they 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 didn't survive as much so we are all now programmed to to bow down to conventional wisdom even when our reasoning tells us it doesn't make any sense we are we have we have very little confidence in our reasoning over conventional wisdom. Except today, conventional wisdom is not usually wise. It's often wrong. You know, my, my grandmother talking about, she is wise about the universal things, about love, about family, about friendship. She she's, has no idea what's going on in my career at all. I would never take career advice from her in a million years because she became wise for a world that's no longer here in that regard. Our, my brain, though, is programmed to trust her if she gives me some advice. So I have to, you know, go, you know, and she, she's, this is the person who after 
uh, you know, bless her heart, after I finished college was telling me, you know, your creative careers are going to end up, you know, making you very unhappy. Go to law school, do something secure. That wasn't the right advice for me. But I, it, it got in my head a little bit because um, I'm programmed to trust that and to be scared of my own reasoning in the face of that. So I think we have to think about that all the time. Like my, my an, an example from my work is um, the conventional wisdom when I started blogging said, don't write long po- blog posts. No one will read them. That is what basically everyone thought. And if you looked online, everything was short listicles basically. Very few long articles. Maybe the New Yorker had the guts to do it because they were New York, the New Yorker, but basically everything was short, uh, especially on something like a blog. And um, I believed that. And my articles, I was really, really stressed about the length for a while. And then I started to notice a pattern, which is that the longer articles actually seem to get more engagement and get more kind of activity. And so I had this moment when I said, I'm looking at first principles like evidence here that are telling me that the puzzle that I'm building there is, is a different thing than what I'm hearing. And I uh, decided to, tr- to trust that puzzle, to trust my ob- observations. And so I, the post got longer and longer, and uh, people did read them. So that was an example of a time when, um, when it was tr- right to trust the first principles reasoning, but again, it was hard. I still had this big voice saying, what are you doing? This is an awful way to grow a readership, even though the evidence hadn't told me that. And in some of your writing, you've brought up some very interesting examples of people who have made it through the evolutionary filter that are not programmed to bow down to conventional wisdom. And you listed people like the Beatles or Elon Musk or people that really are not subscribing to what society thinks is the right way to do something or is popular. And so is that just kind of a kink in genes that are being passed down? or I think, you know, it's not— when I say we're programmed to bow down to conventional wisdom, the thing that's cool about humans is we're not just our programming. You know, if a dog is programmed to want to eat meat, you're not going to turn the dog into a vegetarian by talking to it. It's just not, you can't override that programming uh, very, you know, with that very easily. Humans do have this other voice in their head that, you know, I call the higher mind, but it's a, it's this kind of center of actual, like, real-time consciousness that can actually look around say, okay, wait a second, I see what's happening. Here's the world. Here's my programming. Oh, wait, that doesn't make sense. And then they can override it. Um, Every time uh, someone who is lazy actually gets themselves to work, they're overriding this this uh, tendency, th- th- this this kind of ancient desire to conserve energy. Anytime you want to have candy and you resist, you're overriding your ancient desire to eat whatever kind of dense, calorie-dense food that comes your way. Uh, and so you can do the same thing. You can, you know, I think of Skittles as kind of an example of something that your primitive brain thinks is healthy. It's not trying to hurt you. It thinks that this calorie-rich food you just found, the density of this thing, that the, it, that the chewiness is succulent. Eat it. You know, the colors. This is the most, uh, you just found the best plant ever. Um, and it's gonna, Yeah. <laughs> and, and then your other, your higher mind is saying, no, idiot. Uh, it is not healthy. It is incredibly unhealthy. Don't eat so many Skittles. You know, have a couple and then stop. So I think, well, what are the, where are the Skittles in other parts of our lives? And to me, procrastination is, is Skittles. Uh, bowing down to conventional wisdom in the face of counter evidence is going for the Skittles. It's going for the, the thing that feels good to our primitive brain and feels safe to our primitive brain. Uh, it doesn't actually make sense. So just like we can override Skittles, we can override this. And so I don't think it's a crazy glitch or a mutation that something like, you know, the Beatles or Elon Musk, like you said, you know, or 
plenty of other examples. I don't think it's a crazy mutation. I think it's um, they're good at resisting the Skittles in this part of life, which is in the, in the innovation, creativity, you know, um, investing, whatever part of their life. Uh, and most people aren't. Uh, we're aware of Skittles because it's this widespread understanding now that we have. But we, 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 we lag in our awareness of resisting conventional wisdom Skittles in these bigger parts of life. Um, and so the people that kind of have that secret, know that secret ahead of time, uh, they can get a huge advantage from it. You have such a gift with finding metaphors for these really kind of complex human topics or kind of challenges that we face in life. And one of them that you alluded to earlier was career advice and how most conventional wisdom is outdated. One of the quotes that I found attributed to you is that when it comes to careers, society is like your great uncle who traps you at holidays and goes on a 15-minute, mostly incoherent, unsolicited advice monologue and you tune out almost the whole time because it's super clear he has very little idea what he's talking about and that everything he says is like 45 years outdated. So society is the great uncle and conventional wisdom is his rant. I don't this this captivated me because I've been spending so much time talking to different Olympians and athletes that are reinventing themselves and constantly seeking career advice. And there's the conventional wisdom that comes from your parents or people that started on a career track, you know, maybe from law school. And, you know, it, it kind of happened from graduating from college and into their early 20s. But there were seeds being planted earlier in life. And with Olympians and athletes, we're 25 and we're 30. And we've never even looked at anything else. And we've been homeschooled. And then we're just like, oh, what do we what do we do now? And then on top of that, the world is changing so quickly. This really stuck out for me because— I'm also very curious and very analytical, and I know you've spent so much time analyzing not only, like, what you write about, but why you're writing it and, like, where you're trying to go with it. And so what advice would you have for former athletes or people trying to transition in a world today? Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I um, Well, first of all, being an elite athlete is a weird thing to do. It is already outside conventional wisdom. You know, I mean, once you're already in it, you, you've shown incredible talent and you're going, it seems like it was obvious. But in the first place, most parents who have a really talented kid, they say, well, that's great, but, you know, focus on your schoolwork and, you know, that that's an extracurricular and whatever it is. So already, you've already done something kind of that, that uh, you, you've already looked at evidence that counteracted what you're supposed to kind of do with your childhood and your life. And you've already kind of, so you already have one experience saying, hey, I did things my own way. And it was cool. The second thing I think that's really interesting is someone like you comes uh, into the the quest, you know, the world of what should I do with my life later than most people because you were tied up with this other thing while other people were trying to figure that out. I think that's an advantage in a lot of ways. A little like Apple get, got into the phone game late. They didn't get into the phone game as a phone pro. They they came as an outsider, and they said, okay, well, what's going on here? You know, what 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 is this game that's being played? What what actually makes sense here, though? What are people doing that doesn't make sense? And they had this this ability to have fresh eyes. That was a great asset for them. I think athletes, or anyone or someone, anyone who does a career switch, it, it would go for it too. I think you know that insecurity and kind of um, confusion and period of tier, you know, kind of tyranny of choice and you know indec indecision that I'm sure a lot of athletes feel once they turn their head to other things. Think of that as a necessary kind of cold forest you have to walk through to get to this really original 
um, life path, and you're already in the cold forest. A lot of people never get there. They're just on this path. They already have this idea of what they're supposed to be, uh, and they start doing it, and they never really pick their head up and look around and say, wait a second, you know, what's actually going on here? Does this actually make sense for me? You kind of have no choice. You're thrust into this and have to start looking around as an outsider in a lot of these industries that you're interested in. And, and so think about, you know, the insecurity is a sign also of the fresh eyes that you have and that you're not just um, – in your head, you're not just following a bunch of dogma that that is you're, you've been trained on. You're actually uh, uh, you have this freedom from that in some ways. Um, and so, I think you know, sink into that, sink your teeth, you know, into the fact that you're not kind of anchored into a path uh, anymore, and use that to try to be the apple of whatever you know careers you're interested in. Think about what's actually going on in this world around me. What are the people I know actually doing? And does it make sense? And what are my talents here? And what's the, how's the world changing from what it used to be? And what could I really do? If you just, it just, there's no genius in that, uh, that decision process. That's just, just rationality at a time when we're not really good at it because we, we have so much fear because we're supposed to be something. Well, you know, what's my identity? I need to pick what I'm doing to have my new identity. I was an athlete, but now it's, but remember that you're, none of that should be your identity. That's something that our primitive brain wants to do because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't understand the concept of a true individual identity because that wasn't helpful 50,000 years ago. You wanted to be part of this little pack, this little tribe. Today, it's great to be an individual. So there's no reason to think your identity is at stake here. And, and um, so, yeah, I, I just think there's a, there, the, a lot of the fears that people feel and the anxiety and the pressure to, to figure something out doesn't actually make sense if you just pause for a minute and think about it. You know, and one thing that's nice is think about that you've already, you know, the, the athletes that you're talking about, they've already achieved things that, um, that, 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 if if they if they died today they could they could say wow like what what a life so that's also a huge asset where you can kind of relax a little and say uh, I don't need to prove um, everything you know I, I I've I've proven a lot already you know let me think about this and and not worry so much I think that's the big challenge for people that ended up becoming Olympians is they're wired in a certain way which is very relentless perfectionist tendency with these feedback loops of where winning, achievement, social validation, approval, relevance. And, you know, it's this whole self-perpetuating system. You get to, you peak at an Olympic Games, and then your vehicle is kind of pulled out from under you. And then it, it really is, who, who am I? Because I didn't develop a strong identity outside of being a figure skater. And so it's like, people, what do you want to do? I was like, well, I don't know what I'm interested in. Do I like to write or do I like to draw? Do I, am I interested in investing? And so there's so many things that you just begin to ask yourself in your mid-20s. And now I'm learning that it's important to have an, a balance and a separation of who you are and what you do. But I think those things become so fused together when you pursue a sport at that intensity at such a young age. And so for me, a big part of the process has been redefining what is success. And is success the same thing as happiness or is success external achievement? And and I think that would be very interested to hear your answer because it seems like you've you've dabbled in so many things. You have such an incredible blog. You have a huge reach, an avid fan base. You've worked with Elon Musk. You have so many interesting projects. And so I'm very curious kind of how you, do you see yourself as a blogger? Do you see yourself as like 
a New Yorker? Like, I, how do you really kind of identify and live in the world? I try to keep my identity as bare bones as possible, where I'm this kind of like this say this this little person that's that that I was when I was five is like in there somewhere. This just like very curious, childish kind of this kind of very inner core self. I, I, I try to, you know, some people, of course, the Buddhists would go even farther and say, you're not that person either. You're like this, just this, like, just this raw awareness. And I, I don't know, I, maybe I'll be there in, in 20 years. But at the moment, I'll, I'll go a few layers out in that onion and stop there. I won't go all the way to the in, inside of the onion, but I'll go a few layers out and I'll say, okay, yeah, I'm fine, like, with my, like, inner personality to be like, yeah, that's me. That, that is me. But I don't want to let any, I don't want the onion to grow beyond that. Uh, if I'm doing something right now, I, you know, if I, I could easily say, no, now I'm blogging. Okay, I'm a writer. That's who I am. I am a writer. And then what does that do when I, when, you know, for my future prospects when I really want to, I still want to do a musical. I still like doing business. Um, I, um, I might be really lazy for a few years and not want to write anything. And then now am I not being my, my best self? You know, why, why am I attaching uh, my, like, inner identity, which is the sacred thing? Why am I letting something like writing have a say in who that no you're not uh, you're not invited into that like little identity drawer writing sorry like you're the thing that I'm doing now but like you know it's almost like a relationship I'm like no no, no but like you're not you know you're not forever I'm not committing to you no and I, I you know it's like uh, you know in some ways it's healthy for your identity to kind of be a single person forever uh, and not let itself get married to anything because um, once you do that I think it's constraining and it, it's all about boxes this is another thing you know to be a broken record, we want our, our 50,000-year-old wiring really wants to just simplify and understand the world. So we try to box ourselves, and we try to box other people. And I'm sure you've had a ton of that, of people being like, well, you, but you are this Olympic athlete. And you're like, yeah, that's, but, but I, what I would say is, who, you know, the person inside des- decided to go nuts with this activity for a while. And that's great. Now that person inside is still there, fully intact. And wow, she just like showed how powerful she is. Now that person inside is going to start looking at other things. Like that's so much more liberating. Um, but people won't. People don't like that because it's not satisfying to be like you're some, you know, amorphous, complex, inner, evolving little, you know, personality. No, no, no. You are a figure skater, and I am a writer. And this person is, you know, and we do it with politics, and we do it with race, and we do it with all these things. We want to box and group and 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 simplify and kind of digitize the world, makes it ones and zeros so that it's simple for us. And um, it's a huge mistake a lot of the time. It takes a lot more work and mental effort and thought to to see the world as the complex analog place that it is and not over-digitize it uh, into uh, ones and zeros. Um, but it's worth doing that time, especially on ourselves and on our and on our family and on our friends. I mean, it's really, uh, it's, it, you can do a service to the people around you by um, not over-boxing them and helping them to not over-box themselves and put people in boxes because I think um, uh, it's it's something that pigeonholes us. And then what happens is once once we associate ourselves with a box that people are putting us in. Um, we stop uh, believing in ourselves outside of that box, and we stop having confidence that we can be something outside that box. And that's silly because humans are extremely plastic. We can be good at all kinds of things. We can change. We can evolve. We can change what we like. And you want to have that nimble. You want to keep the clay 
kind of soft. You don't want the clay to harden into something. Um, so I, the way I try to keep the clay soft is think about that onion and rem- remember that the only thing that's me is that really inner part of the onion. And then anything else is what I'm doing now or who I'm, uh, what I'm trying out now. You sound very well adjusted. Yeah, well, <laughs> it seems very healthy. There's a lot of tortured anxiety that that that, that leads to all of these yeah. thoughts in the first place. So, so I wanted to also touch upon happiness because I think in maybe another interview you were contrasting micro and macro happiness, and sometimes we sometimes we're content, sometimes we're happy, sometimes little things make us happy for a day or ten minutes, and maybe we're a little bit misguided in knowing ourselves and knowing what we really want. And so we're chasing after things that we think might make us happy, but won't. And so I'm very curious if you could maybe explain a little bit how you see micro and macro happiness. Yeah, I think um, this was something I, I, this micro macro happiness concept is something that I started thinking about when I went from someone who was doing business, um, you know, Andrew and I were running a company. I was working with my friend. We had great staff. Uh, when you're um, running the company, you don't have to do a lot of the ickiest work because your staff does that. You can kind of work on your own hours. It was just comfortable and pleasant, and my average Tuesday was really a nice Tuesday. I woke up when I wanted. I would go to work, work with great people. We'd laugh a lot, go to a little happy hour. I would I would have time at night. It was just really great lifestyle and all this. My macro happiness was a disaster because there's that voice in me that was saying, like, this isn't what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be writing music or writing or doing something creative. That's what's burning in you to do right now. And you're doing this thing because you're scared to just go for it and whatever it was. And, you know, time's going by and you're not going to, you know, you're going to get more and more regretful and just all this deep negativity. And that was really, I was very macro unhappy. I was not happy with my general life. And that actually hurt my ability to be good at even what I was doing because, you know, half of my brain was on what I, you know, trying to figure out my situation instead of um, just, you know, fully focused, head down, working on the thing I'm working on, which is really a great feeling. So eventually the macro happiness wouldn't actually invade the micro happiness too, where I couldn't enjoy the good Tuesdays and, and all of that. And so now the situation is the opposite. I really like what I'm doing. I really like writing. I get to be a professional, curious person. I get to talk with really interesting people. Um, and uh, and that's great. And I feel this con- this broad contentness that I didn't before that I hope stays. You know, who knows? People change and things change. But at the moment, it's really great. On the other hand, um, my personal flaws uh, of, of – there are many, but the probably the biggest one is that I'm really bad at working – hard on the hard things when no one is making me do it. Uh, I will self-defeat till the end of time and hate myself for it, uh, procrastinating. And when I when you have a staff, uh, you, you're accountable to people and things are moving whether you like it or not. And so you have to, you know, get things in because the meeting's happening and whatever. Now I'm on my own. And I'm and I my perfectionism is out of control with with which is a disaster for writing, um, and uh, I just yeah there's a lot of self defeating going on and um, and it's not great for health and it's not great for um, you know you're, you're it's not great for your psyche you're just anxious all the time so I would say on the average Wednesday like my happiness meter is like a three right now because I'm just just and I'm just just tortured thinking about the outline of the thing I'm working on and I'm mad at myself that I'm not where I was. So it's like this weird situation, but I'm very macro happy. So 
that's my story. Um, and I think that it's everyone has their own version of this. And I think it's important to think about both. Ideally, you can get to a place when you feel good about both. But I would say the first priority is macro happiness. Get the, you know, you can work all you want on getting your lifestyle perfect, but there's this nagging voice in the back of your, of your head that says, this isn't what I want to be doing, or this isn't the marriage I want to be in. This isn't the city I want to live in, you know? Um, then you, that's going to eat away at you, and it's going to ruin the micro happiness. So you got to, you know, it takes some courage, and it takes some first principles reasoning to think about what what really um, would be the macro situation that's good. And sometimes when you know it, it takes first principles reasoning to remind yourself that it's not actually scary to go and do that thing. It feels so icky. It's we, You will procrastinate forever on making huge life changes. Um and actually, when you do it, all those things that seem scary, usually none of them happen. So, um, yeah, I think I think first principles reasoning can help get to that macro happy situation. It reminds me of the life of training for an Olympic Games where you, it's the summer, everyone's at the beach having fun, and you're driving to the rink, and you know you have to do double run-throughs, <laughs> and you're injured, and you've just taken three Celebrex and everything. You're kind of hobbling out of the car and super cold, and you're like— oh, my Saturday is terrible. But then you leave after you've put in the work on the ice and on the track and in the gym, and you just feel exalted and you feel closer to that moment three years out. And that's definitely where the micro, the daily happiness isn't always, you're not having fun and partying and traveling, but for that macro, it just really resonates with Yeah, that was the cost. The cost of the the macro incredible gratification that that it must be, Speed, you know, to must that you must get um, with you know great athletic success. The cost of that is a lot of micro misery in the meantime. Um, but I think that you know, usually in that situation, rarely would people trade off with someone who's feeling has a great micro happiness, but they don't they're not excited about their bigger life. And so that's another you know kind of evidence that you got to go for the macro thing first. So hearing that Tim is not a writer, Tim is some five-year-old child inside. What can, I know that you're working on a book and there's a podcast and I'm wondering why you decided to start a podcast and then also what what your book is about and then where Tim might be in 10 years. Yeah, so I think, um, I'm trying to figure out what I like doing uh, and I am trying to, so I was blogging before I started Waypoint on another blog, and it was just writing. And then one day I turned and saw this drawing tablet on the edge of my desk because at the test prep company that we were running, uh, we were doing a lot of online, you know, Skype testing. We had this, we had these whiteboards, these online whiteboards, and the tutors would need this drawing tablet. So I was like, it crossed my mind that maybe it'd be fun to draw a little picture in this post. And I thought, okay, so it was there. So I tried it. Turned out to be something I really liked doing. And it really enhanced the post. And it's a big part of what I write today. I could have easily never realized I like this. I'm not a good artist. I never will be. Uh, It wasn't on my mind to bring art, you know, drawn art into anything that I did. Turned out that actually stick figures was a really fun thing for me to do. Um, I only discovered that by trying it. So um, what I'm trying to do is this is a constant battle. There's this, it's so, you just want to sink into the thing you already know you're good at. There's all this other stuff you could be good at that you might want to try, that you might really like. 
but you don't know you're good at it, and that's icky, and you already have found something that you 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 know. So why why go and and risk doing something badly? You know, and that's is one of those things where when you're thinking hard about it for a second, you say it doesn't. There's no actual that fear of trying that new thing. It makes absolutely no sense. Um, if, if I if I'm a fan of an artist and and I see them experimenting and trying different things, I think only good things about them. I think that's awesome. They're such an interesting, like, fun person. Um, so why, what am I scared of here? And so what I'm trying to do in this period of time is just try a bunch of formats. I really want to try podcasting. Um, I like doing public speaking now, uh, something I didn't think I you know, would like at some point. Um, I would like to try writing fiction. It sounds horrifying. Even just saying that, I'm like shivering in my boots because um, uh, it sounds scary because it's embarrassing to write fiction. And, you know, and I want to, and I do want to get back to music and all of these things. Um, um, so I'm just trying to keep pushing myself right now. It's really easy to, to and I think, um, and I think, but but my, my broad goal, and I think this should be a goal kind of for, anyone is just, I'm just trying to figure out like what actually, um, gets to like, you know, the gratification that comes from certain work. I think, I don't think it's all equal. I think that some really taps into like the inner, inner you is gratified and some, you know, the inner you is bored, but there's this outer, you know, kind of more shallow ego part of you that's gratified, uh, because people compliment you or whatever, but inner, inner you is not really feel great about it because you just don't it doesn't care. So I'm trying to always seek out the projects that will make the the most inner me feel like, yes, I'm so proud of this. And so um, that's, I'm just seeking those things. And I always want to be, you know, until like maybe, maybe I'll get less ambitious and get bored with creating anything at some point. But at the moment, I'm very hungry to just be creating things that I'm, that I'm proud of. And, um, and so I'm just looking for those things and, um, and, and, you know, trying to, keep, uh, you know, stay creative about where I find them. And is there a battle, an inner battle of giving yourself permission to do what inner you is super excited about versus what this huge following and this fan base you have, what they're excited about? Um, yeah, a little bit. Um, but the cool thing about, you know, a blog, um, or something, a a platform you create is that you, you, you've created it yourself. So it is pretty true to you, but yes, I I, you, I can feel people trying to box me um, when I never used to explain stuff on the blog. But then I started doing a few. I did a few major big explainers, um, and now I, I hear a lot of people being like, "Oh, Tim is an explainer. This is what he does: is he synthesizes something and you know writes a, a blog post about it." Um, and even now, when I will do something outside of that, some people who only know me as the explainer will say, "Like, what is this? This isn't what I come here for." Um, but that, I don't. I don't let that get to me too much. That that you know, it's um, I'm in a, you know a nice position where I have my own platform. I can do my own thing. So it's harder to box me in. Uh, I think if someone has always been a you know a new uh, you know a writer at um, a newspaper, and now they want to go and you know write something different. Um, they can't do that at the newspaper. They have to kind of take a bigger risk, maybe quit their job or do something on the side with a new platform. There's a lot more barrier to getting out of the box people are putting you in. So I feel um, lucky in that regard uh, that I I don't feel that scared of trying new things right now. Um, at, at least at least you know within a certain realm. Um, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how how brave I can be as I try to go out of that realm. That's good. I can see a, a drawing series of like stick figures like breaking out of boxes. Yeah. No, there's definitely a boxes <laughs> post in me somewhere. Amazing. Well, I have one last question. This has been an incredible back and forth. And 
I've gotten a lot out of it. What's your Olympic moment in life? Um, I would say it was when um, uh, I... Well, first I thought it was going to be specifically about sports, and I and I and I was excited because I have an awful, awful. Um, <laughs> it can be a sports moment my, too. <laughs> my my, uh, my athletic career is is deeply paltry, but I hit a home run in Little League when I was eleven, and I'm very excited gotcha. about that. That was a huge deal for me. I was batting ninth out of nine, so that shows you how excited I was. Now, um, uh, the so it had been a long time coming when this blog started, um, where I was just. I had, I had so much energy to create stuff and just, um, but, and I, I think creators, uh, people say like, oh, you know, you should just, if you, if you really love your art, you should just want to do it. You shouldn't need anyone to approve of it or like it. And I think that's silly because, um, for me, like other people, you know, reading or liking what I'm doing, um, you know, yes, of course, some of it is like you, you love having people, uh, praise what you're doing. Of course, there's some ego element of it. But for me, it's like, what's the the point of this is human connection. I'm doing this to get a thought from my brain into other brains and then get their feedback. And it, that it's that connection that is actually the gratifying thing. Writing, having this interesting thought and just writing it in my journal and putting away, that doesn't, that does nothing for me. Um, it is sharing it and having, especially if other people resonate with it is like hugely gratifying. So, I had a long time coming where I was making a lot of stuff. I was, I was again, working on this musical with a friend. I was writing, you know, movie scores on my, you know, at, at home on Logic Pro, but, you know, with no movies yet to put them into. And I was writing this blog that had a very small readership. And there was this, um, this imbalance of uh, this output, and it wasn't connecting in, in the way to, to brains on the other side uh, in a gratifying way. And it was really frustrating. And I knew that part of the reason was that I wasn't putting all my time into it. I wasn't really giving myself to this thing. So when we I started, it was about 10 posts in. Um, I wrote one post on kind of, you know, making fun of millennials. Um, and it just blew up. Yeah, you know, you never know when it's going to happen, but it just went totally mega viral. Um, and, you know, millions and millions of people were reading it. And it the thing that was gratifying was that, like, I had, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 posts on the site so far that had done okay. But suddenly all of them were getting all this attention. And they were all, they were about all different kinds of things. And the, a lot of them were going viral because people were on the site. And it was just this great moment of like breaking through and finally having like a lot of this buildup of thoughts I've been having or ideas uh, connect all at once with people and seeing all this in it and it resonating. And of course, everyone's insecure. So it was this moment of being like, okay, wait, I can be good at this. Like this is, this is, this isn't just in my imagination. And it was just really gratifying. It was a long, frustrating buildup that got kind of released in that moment. And, you know, the email list before that post was 300. Uh, after that post, a week later, it was 30,000. So it was just this, it was this great moment. Uh, um, and again, it wasn't just the two, you know, the, this little wait, but why uh, triumph? It was kind of a 30-year uh, and coming triumph for me. So um, it felt great. And I think that, yeah, that was, uh, that was the Olympic moment. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah, it's like all the work you put in, all these blogs and, you know, other posts that you had, and then this is one moment of recognition and the world It was a big, like, you. finally moment. Yeah. Like, ah, uh, you know. Amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your thoughts, your mind. I'm always fascinated with how you 
think about the world and it inspires Likewise. me to, I, to I, step outside the box. Every so. time I talk to you, I want to like write stuff in my phone after for future blog posts because yeah, you know, I, good things come out of these conversations. I think there's a sports blog. Like, <laughs> why do we have? Why do sports exist? I think right. It's yeah. interesting. Ex- continue to expand your, your base. Awesome. Um, awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Please subscribe to Sasha Sessions wherever you get your podcasts. You can find new episodes every Monday. Produced by Bigfoot Music and Sound in New York City.